a song that has recently been written in the churches that has a powerful chorus line. And the line that especially is incredible is, is in the chorus. It says, that's why we praise him. That's why we sing. That's why we offer him our everything. That's why we bow down and we worship this king. Because he has given us his everything. And as for that, that one line, that is such an easy song to sing too, by the way. That line about that he's given his everything for us. This is something that has been verified and confirmed 12,000 times over. As we think about Jesus giving his everything for us, about Jesus taking the absolute worst, the absolute ugliest, most grotesque that this world had to offer. Even when that called for the washing of the feet of a bunch of guys who we know were just about to betray Jesus, abandon Jesus, and to deny never having known him in the first place. He gave us everything even when it meant sweating blood as he prayed in that moment when, when he really did not want to die like that. And yet, as he sweat those drops of blood, he surrendered to the will of God nevertheless. We serve a God who gave us everything, even when it called for 39 lashes on a Roman flogging post, even when it called for ultimately six hours on a Roman cross, so that a bunch of people who are actually guilty like us could one day have at least the choice of experiencing heaven if we so desired. Down to every last drop of his blood, down to every last beating of his heart, he gave, and he still today gives, his everything just for us. And so, yes, that is such an easy song to sing. And yet, at the same time, it's a very hard song to sing. Now, if we are on Sunday morning autopilot and we're just going through the motions and, and all we really care about is the melody and how we might um, sound as we sing, there's nothing to that at all. But when we consciously comprehend the words that we are singing to each other and to God, that is a whole other animal. I specifically think about that line in the very same song. It's the one which precedes Jesus giving his everything for us. And it says, that's why we offer him our everything. And I just wonder which world this is taking place in. Because every time that I am in an atmosphere where that song is being sung, I always feel like weeping when we get to that part. And that's because we are praising a God who gives us his maximum, his everything. Amen. And yet so often I have given him my bare minimum. It is the minimum for God who gives us every millisecond of our existence, his, his maximum. And I believe that this is the outcome. This is the, the nasty aftermath when we think that worship is a weekly or a monthly or, or in some cases here in our society, an annual event that we have to put on expensive clothes in order to do. It's the result when so often 
The church refers to a cathedral and only the cathedral as the house of the Lord. I believe that every one of us have used this expression with the greatest of intentions. I know that I have so many times throughout my life, but what this implies is that to leave this room and to leave this cathedral is to leave worship and is to leave God's presence for the remainder of the week. Worship stops once we leave those doors in the front. Well, maybe you are giving him everything that you've got every single day, and if so, I, I, I want to become just like you. But if you're anything like me this morning, don't you want to give Jesus your maximum and everything that you've got down to the last drop. Well, in order for this to happen, we must discover what the Lord's house is. Now, I think about King David as he writes in Psalm 122. He says that, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. For we are standing in your gates in Jerusalem, he writes. I mean, he did not resent that. He did not dread it. But he says that, that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He writes elsewhere, Psalm 27 of verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That I may, may seek him in his temple. That I may gaze upon his beauty. I mean, there was nowhere that David wanted to be more than in the house of the Lord. And we can be rest assured that there is absolutely nowhere else God would rather be than right here with us as well. This is something that we see all throughout history as well as scripture itself. How before, how how just as this world was being created and designed by God, we see God's Spirit hovering and gravitating over the surface of the waters. We see God walking in the Garden of Eden, however that, that, um, that it actually had materialized. And yet after that, though, God, dis, or God does something that, that he had never done before, ever before. Where God moves into a tent. And now God's very presence in his being now is consuming in what was known as as the tent of meeting and yet ultimately once it had all been said and done it was nothing but a tent that's because anything created by the hands and by the ingenuity of us is susceptible to being replaced because after god had moved out of that um, um, tent he moves into a tabernacle God's, dwells, or God's presence dwells inside his tabernacle for a time. It was at Gilgal. It was at Shiloh. It was all over the place. God's mobile home. And yet, just as it was with that tent, anything created by man's hands, it is susceptible to being replaced. It's, it's something that is very temporary. That's because after that um, tabernacle had been replaced, then God moves into a temple. And we saw this last week about how, how magnificent this temple was. I mean, four stories tall, gold inlaid walls. You had the Ark of the Covenant inside that building for a time. And for all of the Hebrews, God was just behind that curtain right there in the Holy of Holies. And yet still, it's the exact same thing and story that even with that temple, as great as it was, 
anything that is made by the hands and by the minds of men is susceptible to collapse. And that's because in 586 BC, we see that building, as wonderful as it was, it is leveled to the ground. Historians say that it burned for 24 hours straight, and, and all of a sudden, that, that holy temple was now no more. Well, we fast forward many years in history, and now we have King Herod. He launches this, this massive reconstruction. And so now we have a brand new temple that has now been erected. It had cream-colored limestone. When the sun hit against that building, it was breathtaking to look at because it just, just had this very strange golden hue that was, was very ethereal and very haunting to, to um, look at. And yet, also, as we saw last week, as, as um, a means of quick review, also in this temple, you had that exact same veil. You had the holy place, God's presence, God's dwelling place. And so one day a man named, named Jesus comes along. And he sees his apostles ooing and aahing over this building, over this man-made temple. Look at how incredible this place is. And he, and he tells his, um, his students, and he points at the temple and he says, you see this building right here? He says, before you guys even know it, this great structure is just going to be a pile of rocks and, and, and mortar and debris. And that's because Jesus, seeing ahead, knows that in the year 8070, Rome is coming in and they are leveling this building to the ground. I remember on another occasion how not very long after that, Jesus had been asked, by you know, what sign do you have for us in order to improve that you really have authority to be saying all of these things? And Jesus looks behind him at the temple and he says, you guys see this building right here? I want you guys to destroy this temple and then watch me rebuild it in just three days. <laughs> it took us 46 years to build this temple. And you want us to just rip it down and watch you rebuild it in just three days? And yet Jesus was not speaking about a man-made temple, was he? But when Jesus cries out with a loud voice on that cross, when he hangs his head and he gives up his spirit and he breathes his last, that veil in the temple at that very moment in time, it had been ripped apart from top to bottom. And the very moment Jesus walked out of that um, tomb, living and breathing, forevermore living, never again to die, when we came up from the waters of baptism, never again would just one man have access to that veil on the other side, once a year in the most holy place. Now forevermore, every single one of us have now been made his personal priest who can approach this God even behind the curtain itself, morning, afternoon, night, I mean, every single day of our lives. I love how the Apostle Paul, how he describes this in the book of Ephesians. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone with which we ourselves, he says, are this whole building that's being fitted and enjoined together, growing up into a holy temple for the Lord. 
Notice how he describes what his church is. It is not a cathedral, a temple, a tabernacle. It will never be those things ever again. The Holy Spirit is articulating here. But now if you want to see a church, all you got to do is look in the mirror. God is saying here. It's no longer in temples and tents made with human hands. Now the Holy Spirit, now the blood of Jesus Christ, that is the architect of this church. My friends, we are in the Lord's house this morning. I believe that with all of my heart. And yet I also believe that, that once we leave that hallway and we walk outside of those doors later on today, when we're driving in our cars and traffic, we are still going to be in the house of Jesus Christ. I think that every one of us consciously understands this. And yet our struggle so often is spiritually grasping and is anointing a cathedral and a building as the only place that we can call the house of the Lord. And the reason why I say that is because we are living in a culture that uses phrases like, well, you can't lie in church. You can't tell that story in church. If you want to tell that joke, you have to go outside and make sure you're not telling that joke in church. Really, what is the implication there? That once we leave those doors, we can say whatever we want to. We can, do, we can conduct ourselves any way that we wish to, as long as we're not, quote, quote, in church. I mean, entirely unaware that the cathedral where we meet in is no more sacred than the men's room at a gas station bathroom, at the city dump. That everything that we say and everything that we do happens at church, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of the living God, because after all, brothers and sisters, we are, we ourselves are the houses of the Lord. And yet, as I am beginning to experience in my walk with Christ, when we wake up in the morning knowing and believing with all of our hearts that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, when we go through our, our day every single day, thinking and understanding that I am the house of the Lord, then it becomes so much easier giving Jesus our everything if we know what the house of the Lord is in our everyday lives. And I also want to say that in order for us to give Jesus our maximum, we also need to understand what the day of the Lord is and what the Lord's day is. And now, a lot of times when a church gathers, we might use phrases like, this is the Lord's day. Sometimes we might even um, have a song, this is the day that the Lord has made, and so forth. And I know that what we mean by that is that if, if I wanted to, I could have stayed home today. But I came here instead because I want to glorify God. I want to uplift my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is the Lord's day. And I believe with all my heart that this absolutely is the Lord's day. And yet where this one becomes a snare for us is when we subconsciously anoint Sunday and exclusively Sunday as the Lord's day. And to refer to Sunday and exclusively Sunday as the Lord's day is to say, God, on Sunday morning, I will let you have all of that. 
And yet Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all of that is the day of me. It's, you know, all of that is the day of David. It's my day. It belongs to me. And the most helpful way that I've ever heard this expressed is by one of our foremost scholars and theologians of today. His name is Troy Niedfeld. And Troy writes that an hour or two on Sunday morning, and the American evangelical, he proclaims, he exclaims that, that I've done my duty, and now I am free to go my way until next Sunday. 168 hours in a week, and we often reason in our hearts, here are one or two, O gracious God, that I give to you. The other 167 I devour for myself gluttonously. And then I just want to ask a question. I want us all to dream together right now. And that is, what would our lives look like if we went into every single day believing in our hearts that this is the day of the Lord, that I am here for a reason? If we went through every hour at work or at school knowing in our hearts that, that man, this is the day of the Lord, and I will rejoice and I will be glad in it. I mean, you know it's bad when even Google has no idea what the Lord's Day is. The other day I was on there, I asked Google, what is the Lord's Day? And it spits out Sunday at me. I'm thinking, no, bad Google, bad. I mean, you're supposed to know everything. And yet it seems like the most elementary things is what I struggle with the most. Maybe you have something in common with me. Maybe not, but... But it might surprise us all to learn that that phrase, the um, Lord's Day, um, it's used only one time in all the Scripture. The entire Word of God, that phrase, the Lord's Day, is used only one time. Now, it's not to be confused with, with um, another phrase, which is the, the um, Day of the Lord, which is, which is in reference to our final judgments. And yet, the only place where we find the Lord's Day referred to is in Revelation chapter 1. Now, in Revelation chapter 1 and in verse 10, we see the Apostle John. And he writes that I was in the Spirit. Notice, he says, on the Lord's Day. That I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And that's when he begins writing to the churches of Asia through um, Christ. Now, in our black and white world of tradition. There have been many who have read this verse and have said, well, okay, clearly what, what John is referring to, to here, he says, um, he says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And so this means that as he writes this, it is on, on a Sunday morning, because after all, Christ, raised, or Christ had been raised on the first day. We have examples in Scripture about the early church having communion on the first day of the week, and so what John means here is that it was on a Sunday. And yet the far larger thought that I want to impress upon our minds this morning is the historical context of this statement. This will help us see all of the color in this phrase. That's because the people who, who John is writing to lived under a very scary time. When you had emperors who would make everybody fall down and worship um, there before you, and on the first day of every month, it was known as the Emperor's Day. 
And these emperors were, I mean, egomaniacs. It might be an understatement. They regarded themselves as gods and as lords. They built temples just for the worship of them. And, and so it became a requirement for all of the citizens to worship these emperors. And so if you are a Christian in, here in this Roman Empire, it is a commandment for you to burn incense and to say out loud, the Lord is Caesar and my God is Caesar. And if you did not say that, then you just became guilty of committing treason. Oftentimes you would be killed for doing this. Other times you might be sent away on an island, which is exactly why John is on an, there on an island as he says this. Other times you would have to stand and watch as your wife and as your kids have been thrown to lions. I mean, these early saints, what they are doing here is saying, no, 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 you can call this the Emperor's Day all you want to, but as for us and our households, this is the Lord's Day. We don't care what you do to us either, because our God is not Caesar. Our God is King Jesus. And so what these Christians are doing is very brave. It's saying that, that you know, we defy Caesar himself no matter what the consequences are going to be. This is the Lord's day. And yet, as for us, God, you know, clearly wants us all to be here on Sunday morning. I mean, absolutely. Because our God is worthy of the praises which we sing to him. He, he understands that, that our very spiritual, our survival, it depends on, on you encouraging me and on me encouraging you. And yet, Yet what I believe God wants for us even more than, than even that is that we leave those doors stepping back out into this world knowing, comprehending, and believing in our hearts that we are the house of the Lord. And that we wake up in our beds every morning knowing and being excited about this is the Lord's day every single day that we wake up. I once heard it asked, what kind of church would we be if we were to replace this is the day of the Lord with this is the week of the Lord? If we were to replace this is the week of the Lord with this is the month of the Lord? If we were to replace this is the month of the Lord with this, this whole entire year, it is the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, in order for us to, to, to truly give Jesus our everything, we have to choose the Green Mile. And now the Green Mile is a story written by Stephen King. It's about these inmates who are on, on a death row in a 1930s prison. And inside this prison, you had a green floor, which was called the um, Green Mile, where anyone who was condemned and sentenced to um, death would walk all the way down this green floor, all the way until it led to the electric chair. And in the story, if you form anyone who would sit in that electric chair, at, really, as their, um, really as, as their consequence, that was known as riding the, the lightning. Well, at one point in the story, there is an inmate whose name is, is um, Ed Delacroix. He was an arsonist slash killer. And at his execution, there is a sadistic guard who wants this guy to um, suffer 
even longer than, than anyone, had, anyone had ever suffered in this chair. And so as Ed Delacro is being um, killed there in the electric chair, it was so cruel and so, so dehumanizing that it caused everyone in the room to recoil in disgust about how he was dying. Everybody is sitting there as his head catches on fire. His execution was going three or four times longer than, than it ever had before. He screams the screams of hell. His body now is on fire. The smell is unimaginable, and, and everybody heads for the exits there in a panic drove. And then at last, his execution stops. And when they pulled that sheet from, from off of his head, Ed Delacro no longer resembled a human being. Even that sadistic guard who had done this to him, he was aghast and speechless with, with them horror over what he had just witnessed. And yet, just think about being one of those criminals convicted to die. You are walking physically down the green mile, and you get to the foot of that electric chair. And then in, from out of nowhere, walks this man who joyously straps himself into that chair and to the delight of his soul, he rides the lightning so that you will never have to. It's the easiest song on earth to sing. That's why we praise him. That's why we sing and we think, yes, Jesus came to our rescue. Jesus walked our green mile. Jesus strapped himself into our electric chair. Jesus rode the lightning, not for three or four minutes, but he rode that lightning for six hours on the cross just so we could spend eternity with him. And yet there is another side to that coin, though. Yes, Jesus came to our rescue. Yes, Jesus had to be that, that, you know, that one sacrifice for all times. And yet the other side to that is that we have a sacred responsibility our own selves. And it's, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, that if anyone is desiring to ever come after me, he has to deny himself. He's got to take up his cross every single day. And then once he has done that, or she has done that, you've got to follow in my footsteps. As Ed Delacro was being executed in the electric chair, it was so cruel and dehumanizing that it caused everyone in the room to recoil in disgust. His head caught on fire. He screamed the screams of hell. His entire body was on fire, and the smell was unimaginable. And there were people running for the exits in panic droves because of how aghast and disgusted and disturbed that they were by it. You see, that is how savagely we have to die to our own selves, to our own desires. That's how savagely we must die to our selfishness, to our self-reliance, to our self-pity, to our self-loathing, and to our self-righteousness. Every single day of our lives, as we lift up that cross of self-denial, as we strap ourselves in to that electric chair of self-denial, and then follow in the footsteps 
of Jesus Christ. And there's another name for that description, by the way. It's called the Christian life. That is what the Christian life is according to Jesus. I don't want a stained glass window Sunday morning Christianity. I want a green mile Christianity. I don't want to have a relationship or a reliance upon a cathedral that I call the house of the Lord. But rather, I want to embody Jesus. I want to become Jesus to every single person who I meet and encounter each day in my life. And so in closing, what I want to invite us to is just, just um, a couple of quick things. I want to challenge you as well as me myself to just think about everything that we, we have in our lives right now. We have homes, we have cars, I mean, we have all kinds of things. We have jobs. But I want us all to, to look at those things as not having come from, from, from us or from any effort of our own. But rather, I want us to, to see that, that all of this has come from God himself. And especially what I want to impress on our minds is that, is that we look at these things not as this is my property, this belongs to me, but, but really this is God's. This is God's property that he has entrusted to me. What would it look like in our lives if every single day of our lives had started with, with um, imagining us here at an altar? And we come before this altar with, with our wristwatch. And we say, God, every single minute on this wristwatch, I will live today. This is not my time. But rather, this time, it is your property, your possession, and I want to live this day for you. Because after all, this is the day of the Lord. Likewise, to also, as we have our money, that we lay our very wallets and our debit cards and our credit cards on that altar and we say, God, this does not belong to me. This belongs to you. God, give me the imagination about how to use your money in ways that will bless and that will bring your very kingdom of heaven down here on earth and help people see what Jesus Christ is all about how we lay our own selves on this altar every single day and say, God, every last drop of my energy I give to you because I don't want to live for myself anymore. I did that long enough. I want to squeeze every last drop of my energy for you in this world. What would our lives look like if we were to do that? And secondly, what I want to invite us to, when we hear that word church, Again, this culture, really the first thing that, that still to this day pops in our minds is a church building, is a cathedral, is an auditorium, is a pulpit perhaps, pews, emblems. And yet what if we were to completely change our word association with church? And the very first thing that will pop in our minds as we hear that, that word church is who is looking at us in the mirror when we wake up. It's to see living temples rather than, than man-made structures. And to ask ourselves, Lord, how can I play a role in unleashing your, your kingdom in the office where I work, 
in the people who I know, in, the, in everywhere that I will go today. Um, a very close friend of mine is, is I'm a minister, and last week he had invited his church with these words. He said that our vision in churches far too often is just pretty words on a piece of paper that don't really mean anything. He said, I do not want to give my life to that. He continued and he said, if the vision for us as a church 10 years from now is simply, how can we get more people here on Sundays? I want you to shoot me, he said. <laughs> Please, somebody shoot me if that is what our vision is. He says, that is not an interesting question in our world at all. But you know what is an interesting question? How can we as the church get more and more people clean drinking water throughout the world? How do we as a church help children not to be trafficked in sexual slavery anymore? How can we as a church change our culture and to honor women in ways that the rest of the world is way behind on? How do we help teenagers who for whatever reason are, are shooting up schools and committing suicide? How can we as a kingdom of God address these things here in our society. He said at last, that is an interesting question that this world would like to see answered by the church. I mean, that is giving him our everything. That is giving him our maximum. If we are to love our fellow man enough to go one extra mile for him, then how much more should we do for the man who went the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth mile down the green mile just for us? That's why we praise him. That's why we bow down and we worship this king. Because he gave us and he still gives us his everything. And now, my friends and my brothers and sisters, let us now give him our maximum, our everything, and our all.